0: Well, good morning. What a, uh, what a cause for celebration this morning in the life of our church body. Uh, not only do we get to uh, have the pleasure and honor that we have just received uh, to point to the goodness of our Savior by witnessing these two baptisms this morning, uh, but further, we, we get to continue to point to the goodness and work of our Savior uh, here in, in a, a few minutes by sharing together at the Lord's table Uh, I I trust that it's clear to you that every Lord's Day that we gather together is a celebration for God's people. We're celebrating very intentionally. Uh, That's why we're gathering on Sunday, isn't it? We are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and His victory over death and sin. And we do that in a number of ways week after week. But it's not every Lord's Day that we get to celebrate it with what we began with this morning. And the fact of of it not being a regular occurrence week after week can even increase the opportunity of it, Uh, the, the meaningfulness of the event in terms of the effect that it has on us, on the hearts and minds of God's people. Now, that is the case if we maintain a clear idea in our own minds about what it is that we are witnessing when we witness Uh, brothers and sisters coming forward to be baptized. And so I think it's good for us to use the opportunity this morning to pause for a week in our study of John's gospel and to reflect on what we have just seen and participated in. And there's a particular word that I think is helpful for us to have in mind as we're reflecting on the meaning here. Uh, It's a word that is actually, sadly, thrown around quite a bit in our time, but it would be the word identity. We live in a time when the notion of identity seems to be connectable to almost anything that we might do or think. And as we recognize those, uh, those false ways of thinking about identity, it can sometimes lead us to fail to think about what makes for the identity of individuals. And I want to say to you this morning that Here, what we have just witnessed are declarations that genuinely relate to identity. Devin and Graham have entered the waters of baptism, and they've done it as a great public declaration. They have declared that they have been buried with Christ in his death and raised to new life in him. And they choose then, as an act of obedience spurred on by the work of the Spirit in their life, they choose then to identify publicly with the Lord Jesus Christ, but also then with his body, with his people. In other words, as they seek to respond to Christ's command to be baptized, they didn't do it by going into the Colorado mountains and going up to the top of a hill and shouting it, on the hilltops, shouting it out to the clouds and to the birds. It's not what they've done. They are declaring an identity with the visible people of God. It is quite true this morning that these two were not saved by what just took place, isn't it? Baptism does not convey or grant salvation. And yet, as we begin here to look at God's word and what it would say to us about uh, what we have just witnessed, it is interesting and I think helpful for us to begin by noticing that baptism, as it's described in the New Testament, is often mentioned amid descriptions of God's saving work. Just to give you a few examples of what I'm talking about, listen to the wording of these passages. Acts 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mark sixteen sixteen, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now think about that one, because you have two halves to that statement, don't you? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That second half of the statement is very important for us in understanding clearly the point that's being made. What what that helps us to see is that the crux of the matter is belief, not the baptism. Baptism is the identification with Christ as my Savior publicly, not being ashamed of him, but declaring what he has done and to whom I now belong. But you can hear in the way that that verse is stated that such a public identification with Christ is simply assumed on the part uh, to, to be present on the part of those who believe, the part of those whom God has saved. What we see, as we continue this morning as well, is that the Bible does not recognize the scenario of a person being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, connected to the life-giving vine that is Christ adopted into the family of God, and then choosing to remain hidden from sight, not accompanying that faith inwardly expressed with an outward expression, a confession of Christ. That confession is significant. It's that confession that's spoken about in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You don't see there are two different ways of salvation or anything like that. You see two signs of the coin of salvation. What does God do in me as he brings me to life from the dead? He leads me to confess in my heart and to confess with my mouth. Further, we read in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, these words. He's speaking of the body of believers, and he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So I hope you can see just initially this morning, as I survey those statements, that very clearly baptism is spoken of in the New Testament in contexts where God's saving work is described. So then the question for us to be very clear on is the how question. How does baptism relate to our salvation? If there is some relationship there, but it is not one of causation, we're not being saved by our baptism, then what relationship does exist? And this is one of those areas where we can be very helped in understanding the significance of a thing simply by listening to the way that the Bible describes it. And in the time that we have this morning, I want us to look at two passages in particular in that way. The first is Galatians chapter 3. If you would turn there, Galatians 3, verses 25 to 27. This is the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul to the Galatians. He says this, beginning in verse 25, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now there's something we need to do right away as we're looking at what he has said there, especially in verse 27 and that is to set aside any idea that Paul is equating my water baptism with the moment of putting on Christ. He has been saying in this entire section that we are united with Christ only through faith. That is his entire point in this passage. What he's doing is he is equating our putting on Christ with the reality that lies behind and is pictured by our baptism. So to that end, Uh, John Stott says this, I found this helpful. He says, we must give Paul credit for a consistent theology. The whole epistle is devoted to the theme that we are justified through faith, not circumcision. It is inconceivable that Paul should now substitute baptism for circumcision and teach that we are in Christ by baptism. The apostle clearly makes faith the means of our union with Christ. He mentions faith five times in this paragraph but baptism only once. Faith secures the union. Baptism signifies it outwardly and visibly. Thus, in Christ, by faith inwardly, verse 26, and baptism outwardly, verse 27, we are all sons of God. This is helpful even in thinking about the dynamics of the church, the existence of an invisible church, the union of the people of God in all the earth and then the distinction of the visible people of God expressed in local uh, gospel-possessing churches. Now, there's something that we should not miss here in what Stott has said and what we're reading in Galatians 3, and that is that baptism serves to signify or demonstrate the reality of our union with Christ. That's, That's what the picture is for. As Paul is describing it, He is not being clever, he's not being creative as he thinks about our command to be baptized and how, oh, that kind of looks like a burial and a, oh, I have an idea of how to apply this. He's not showing creativity as he speaks of these connections. He has chosen to describe it this way because this is exactly what the physical sign of baptism exists for. And Paul makes that very same point only with even greater detail in the second passage I'd like us to see together, and that is Romans chapter six. You can turn back there if you were there with Dennis. We'll just look at the first five verses. A famous set of statements by the Apostle Paul, and rightly so, the kind of thing very good for believers to commit to memory to be able to recall as as God's means of encouragement. Here's what we read there. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death You hear what is being put on display visibly as we follow our Lord in baptism. Now, what we've just read really shows, if you notice it, the same point that we saw in the book of Galatians, but it seems to me with even more clarity and fuller explanation. Our identification with Christ, called baptism into Christ, is what is pictured by our water baptism. And thus, our water baptism declares the following to witnesses. You can see it here. Verse 3, that we are united to Christ Jesus in his death. Verse 4, that we are united to Christ Jesus in his burial. Verse 4, that we are united to Christ Jesus in his new life. I mean, what we're making here is a statement of a real and efficacious union with Christ. A union that strongly impacts, shapes, drives what the subsequent life of that believer is going to look like. The church joins with that one in confession and says this is a picture of what the work of Christ looks like in the life of a human being on earth. You wanna know what a Christian looks like? Look to this person. This isn't what Christ looked like because we're not claiming a sinless perfection, are we? There is no picture of sinless perfection represented in any of us, and never will be, as John makes very clear. But what we find is a statement of a picture of dissatisfaction with the sin that remains. Leon Morris described it once this way. I've always appreciated how he said this. He says... He is saying that it is quite impossible for anyone who understands what baptism means to acquiesce cheerfully in a sinful life. The baptized have died to all that. What we find as we chase after Christ as uh, recreated uh, children of God is we find not perfection, but we do find the presence of grieving over our sin. I mean, we sense that something is not as it ought to be. We feel awkward in our sin. Something's not right until a day that I'm promised is coming when my sin will be put away from me once and for all. And I begin to long for that day. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to the Lord God through his son, Jesus Christ. And as I walk with Christ in this life... Some things will be seen in me, even as I stumble and fall. There will be confidence in the finished work of Christ that leads me never to despair in that, but to always get up and to continue the fight. There will be hatred of sin. My humility towards our merciful God will grow as I continue to see just how, just how kind he has been to me in bearing with me in loving me when I was yet his enemy. When I first come to Christ, I appreciate that, that he saved me when I was yet his enemy. But a few decades in, I already have a much better sense of just how wretched was the creature that he looked on and chose to love in his son. In my pursuit of Christ, I will be working to put sin to death. And if all of this that we're describing, the the state of things without the Lord Jesus Christ, the impact of his work in my place, the working out of that in terms of God's promises to his children, if that's starting to sound like something of a gospel presentation, that's because the gospel is exactly what is put on display in the ordinances that God has given to his church. It's almost like he had a plan for his people to be reminded of these things on a regular basis as we live together in fellowship. It's almost like that. Thank you for laughing. I always worry that maybe my sarcasm sometimes won't get across. That was sarcasm there. Think of what all of that says. We have a need for restoration and cleansing. We have been, it was talked about in Sunday school this morning... We have been, by our sin, defiled. We can't get it off. There's a need for restoration. There's the freedom and necessity to utterly rely upon Christ, not to help me out, but to bring me to life from the dead. There's the reality of true rescue by my union with Christ. Not because of anything I could do. If I could do, then Christ came and died for no purpose. So there's the reality of genuine rescue by union with Christ. That's what these two brothers have declared to be the reality this morning in their own lives. So now there's another question for us to consider because we're gathered here this morning. We have just witnessed these things. Where do you come in, in a service like this morning? Are you just a spectator? I hope that you don't think of yourself that way. The answer is those brothers and sisters in Christ who are here this morning are far from spectators. You are commanded, as the witness of what has been done this morning, to do some things. Can I share with you some obligations that you've taken on this morning, whether you were planning to or not, as you came and gathered in this service? Here are some obligations. You are commanded by the Heavenly Father to rejoice. I mean, something worthy of praise has just taken place, hasn't it? And think of it in the abstract. What does the Bible command of us when our brothers and sisters are rejoicing? It commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, I say that as God's gracious obligation to you this morning, and it needs to be said because for some of us, we are hurting this morning. We have come here in need of comfort ourselves. And this is the right place to come in such moments because God's word commands us to weep with those who weep. This is the community of God's people. This is where we find true fellowship and comfort and encouragement. You may have come here this morning weeping. And so you've come with legitimate need to be met with love and comfort and encouragement yourself. But here's what I would say to you. Whatever your burden is this morning, which is not at all diminished by this, you are given here an opportunity, and in fact, are exhorted to fight the fight that's necessary to express joy today for your brothers in Christ and for their families. This is just one of the many incredibly blessed ways that our Lord deals with us so gently as he puts us in situations and commitments and places that really force us to look outside of ourselves, To not live simply for ourselves or in response to our own circumstances. Those things are real. They matter. But I have been called to die to myself, haven't I? And he graciously gives us opportunities and means to really express that. I'll tell you, there is nothing so much of a bondage than a life that is lived in a navel-gazing position. Thanks be to our God that he doesn't leave us there. We have an obligation to rejoice this morning. Here's another. And this is, we could say it in a very general way. We must sense our obligation as witnesses to this public declaration. What I mean by that is this you've now heard their identity in Christ publicly declared. They're going to live out the rest of their lives now. And at many points, they may have need for people to come alongside them in the future. Brothers and sisters who are not in this room, I trust God will use many to do that in all of our lives and in their lives. But my friends, you, you alone have a memory, a connection point that nobody else will ever have. You sat and witnessed their declaration of being one deserving of no good thing and yet receiving by pure grace the saving work of Jesus Christ. And I would just suggest to you this morning that there's obligation that comes with receiving that sort of witness. If someday they are overcome with burdens, they're being maybe tempted to doubt God's promises or his goodness, you may do in a unique way what the biblical authors do often you may remind You may remind them of what they themselves have seen and affirmed and declared to you this morning. Remember what you stood that day? What, day? what day is it today? I have my watch off because I didn't want to forget when I hopped in. You remember what you declared on that day? My friend, it is still true today. We can remind them. If someday they are wandering from the Lord, We can remind them of this day, and I don't mean that in the way that is so often thought of, that is so inappropriate. We would never remind them as they are living in a season of rebellious, callous sin. We would never say to them, you know, it's okay, don't worry, I remember that day when you were baptized. So take comfort in your ongoing rebellion against God. That is not the reminder that I'm talking about. The reminder is something like this, brother, I watched you publicly Identify with the Lord Jesus Christ as dead in him and alive only in him. How could you now dishonor him in this way? You turn around and you go back. All God's children will bring that loving rebuke to them if they are in times of rebelliousness. But none of them will be able to say what you say. I remember what you confessed that day. You were walking away from that confession. That's a special thing. Finally, in terms of obligation that God's people have on occasions like this, we could say it this way. We are all obligated this morning to remember that we all have that same obligation with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ that we worship together with, that we covenant with to do life together as God's church. And you live your Christian life, if you're a member of this church, as part of a body of baptized believers. And gaining new obligations toward two this morning can refresh our memory about the obligations that we share with each other. We read in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Can we all benefit from a reminder this morning that we have been called outside of ourselves, called to live a life of pouring out of service to each other? God has given each of us in Christ unique gifts to build up his people and tasked me to make use of them for the good of his bride. We are to be reminded this morning of the obligation that we share joyfully with one another. Isn't it wonderful to look around a room like this and to remember there are a whole family of God's people who have committed been brought by God himself to encourage me to speak into my life, to pray with me. Oh, God's ways are good and true and safe. And now that we've had the great privilege to hear the testimony of God's work in the lives of these two brothers of ours, we now have the privilege as well of joining together corporately in remembering and proclaiming Christ's death through the Lord's Supper, through the elements that I have in front of me here. Celebrating the Lord's Supper, the church is often called this communion, the communion table. Because this is exactly what we do as we share in this meal together. And it's something we do together by God's very design. We say many things when we share in the Lord's Supper together. We call Christ publicly, visibly, the source of our true spiritual nourishment. We proclaim together his death when he sacrificed himself for us that we might be washed pure by his blood of all defilement. We proclaim together our membership in the blessed new covenant because that covenant is inaugurated through Jesus' blood, as we're about to hear. That blood is what the cup will signify, as Jesus tells us when he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let me invite you now, let's begin to prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord's table as we sing together.